one verse of scripture. It says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Greater love hath no man than this. Another place in scripture says that peradventure for a good man, a man may lay down his life. But you and I aren't worthy. We weren't good. But Jesus Christ died for us. I want to talk about the miracle of the cross. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love you. We ask you to bless this word. Lord, I'm asking you to let it minister to us. Let it, let it sink into our heart. Let it touch us and let it change us. Let the great love of God get a hold of us, Lord, in such a way that we will never be the same again. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Can I get to say amen one more time just for fun of it? Now you said it three times in a row. Don't you feel good? In the scope of human history, no day could be more significant than the one that forms the setting for this lesson. Over the span of a 24-hour period, the culmination of a plan that was put into place since before the worlds were framed from the foundations of the world, that plan came to pass on that day. Amen. Redemption in all of its glory and majesty was exercised in the unjust and undeserved execution of the man, Christ Jesus. And his death provided a substitutionary atonement for the sins of humanity. Nothing else could do it. There was no other way to cover sin. It took blood, uh, and it took the blood of a righteous man. Uh, and the scripture said that heaven searched, uh, and finding no man, uh, God became a man. He bared his right arm of power and authority. Amen. And he came, uh, and he paid the price. Amen. From the day that he was born, from the moment that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and that baby was miraculously conceived in her womb, Jesus' life pointed to the cross. Everything was about the cross. Uh, when the angel explained to Joseph what had happened to Mary, the angel made Christ's purpose on the earth quite clear. He said in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Aren't you thankful, amen, that Jesus Christ still saves uh, from sin? Amen. He lived every single day in the shadow of the cross in his future. He never lost sight of it. He taught the masses. He healed the sick and he raised the dead. Uh, amen. And he completely understood uh, that these were simply parts of a process that was leading him to the cross. Amen. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. His destiny and his purpose lay in a corrupt 
trial, on a cruel cross, on nails that would be driven in his hands and feet, and a borrowed tomb because nothing else could redeem fallen humanity. Nothing else could save fallen man. Politicians are running around saying, what, do we, what can we do to fix the problem we have? What can we do to take care of violence in our society? What can we do to protect ourselves from all these this sexual allegations and these, these violent gun crimes and all? What is the answer? I can tell you what, there's only one answer, my friend, and the answer is the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can save man from his sinful condition. Amen? So the cross becomes the linchpin around which all of salvation hinges. It's completed work both humbles and lifts us up. It causes us both to weep at the thought of what the Savior endured and to rejoice at the fact that he endured it. Amen. That he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the suffering of the cross. Uh, and while we mourn that our loving Savior was forced to endure such savagery, we celebrate the fact that his unfailing love constrained him to do so. Others may not understand that. For them, to preach the cross is simply foolishness. Uh, but for us, uh, who have experienced his miraculous power, it is the power of God uh, unto salvation. Uh, amen. It's not just about a broken body. Uh, it's not just about a bloody, gory scene that Hollywood may portray. It's about the, the grace of God. It's about the mercy of God. It's about the power of God that saves us. The trial of Jesus Christ was a miscarriage of justice on multiple fronts. Foremost among them is the fact that the judge was being judged. Think about it for a minute. The Lord's identity as the judge over all the earth is clearly established in Scripture. Psalm chapter 9 and verse 7 says, But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. Psalm 50 and 6 says, And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. The word of God says that the ways of God are so far above our ways that we can't even begin to grasp them. And it's, little, it's, it's a whole lot more than just ironic to consider the righteous judge. That's what Paul called him, the righteous judge. Standing before a collection of sinful men and being judged by them. Make no mistake about it, the cross was a humiliating event. The scripture said that he who was in the form of God, amen, he who was equal with God, took upon himself the form of a servant and humbled himself in obedience to death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. Amen. On that one night, Jesus Christ would stand before Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod all in the same night. And none of those men had a right to judge him. By what wisdom can they decide 
whether he's righteous or not, whether he's innocent or guilty. By what authority can they pronounce his sentence? Clearly, it, it was not proper for that to happen. Amen. The, the judge of all the universe, the creator of all that is, the greatest travesty of the trial of Jesus Christ is the fact that the participants were on the wrong side of the bench. Those who sat in judgment were judging the only one that can judge. Of all the men who've ever stood before that council, Jesus Christ was the only completely innocent man that ever stood before them. Not only was he not guilty of the charges of blasphemy that were brought against him, but he was completely pure in every way imaginable. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Not only was he not a sinner, he didn't even say hateful things. He didn't even say rude things. Amen. Guile wasn't found in his mouth. All, when he could have risen up and spoken down, when he could have said to those that, that were mocking him and beating him, when he could have spoke to them in a harsh manner, there was no guile in his mouth. All of his actions in his very essence were perfectly holy in their totality. He was truly an innocent man. Amen? They wanted to execute him. We talked about this last week. They wanted to execute him because he claimed to be God. But that claim was not blasphemy. We covered that last week. He was indeed God because they, they couldn't grasp the miracle of the incarnation. They assumed that such words as I and my father are one constituted the gravest of sins. Uh, what they didn't understand is that Jesus Christ could make that a statement. If anybody else said it, it, it would be a, a transgression. Amen. But Jesus Christ alone uh, could stand and say I and my father are one. Why? Because Colossians 2 and 9 tells us that in him dwelleth all the the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen. Everything that God is. Uh, all that God is. I always, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get sidetracked. And maybe I'll make it back to my text. I, I'm always amazed. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Paul is an educated man. He's a brilliant man. And he is trained in the rhetorical arts. And he's writing this in a rhetorical fashion. And it is it is unnecessary to put the word all and the word fullness in this sentence. They mean the same thing. Essentially, it's unnecessary to put either the word all or the word fullness because if you've got Godhead, you've got all that God is. But Paul said, just in case you have any doubt about it, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. Amen. Going to tell you three times so I make sure you get it. All of what God is, the fullness of what God is, the very essence and nature of God, the Godhead, all of that is in him bodily. Amen. So when they sent Jesus to Calvary, they condemned an innocent man, but they were so desperate to condemn him that they sought out false witnesses to testify against him. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 59 says, Now the chief priest and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put 
him to death. And though their, their lies may have given a cloak of respectability to the proceedings, any uh, observer sitting back and watching things unfold would have noted that their accounts didn't quite line up. Mark chapter 14 and verse 56 tells us, For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. They couldn't even keep their lies consistent. They couldn't even keep the story the same. One witness said one thing, another witness got up and said something that contradicted him, but in the end they convicted him. The thing was the Jewish Sanhedrin was not allowed to sentence a man to death under the Roman occupation. And because of that, they were compelled to pass the judgment of Jesus to the Roman governor for his approval. Pontius Pilate will be, because of that, forever remembered as the spineless leader who ultimately capitulated to the demands of an angry mob and condemned Jesus Christ to death. And it's abundantly evident from Scripture that he had no inclination to do so. He didn't want to do it. Paul, our, our pilot, demanded that the Jewish leaders should, should tell him the charges that were against this Jesus. And they presented him with three charges. First of all, they said he perverted the nation of Israel. Second, they said he forbid the giving of tribute to Caesar. We know that's not true. Amen. What did he tell Peter? He said, go fishing. They said, well, master, should you pay tribute? He said, take the coin out. Show me whose face is on that coin. Amen. You pay tribute to that. Amen. But, but they accused him first of perverting the nation of Israel. Second, of forbidding the paying of tribute to Caesar. And third, that he claimed to be the promised Messiah. Now, the first two accusations were, were patently false, and we, it doesn't take very long to, to un, uh, uncover that in Scripture. And the third was absolutely true, but it was not a crime. He was the Messiah. Amen. He was exactly who he claimed to be. And Pilate could see through the sham. Amen. Pilate questioned Jesus very carefully. And as a result, declared on three different occasions that he could find no fault or no guile in him, no guilt in Jesus. He was even warned by his wife to tread carefully in his treatment of Jesus. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19 says, When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. I'm going to tell you something. Had Pilate been a stronger leader, he'd have listened to his wife. Amen. Boy, I got a lot of amens out of the gentleman in the house. It's true anyway. Sometimes God gives your wife some insight that you ought to pay attention to. Pot calling the kettle black. Praise the Lord. I'm thankful for my wife. Amen. Instead, he attempted to defer the matter to Herod. When he learned that Jesus was from Galilee, Herod was the one that was over Galilee. So he, he thought perhaps he could send Jesus to Herod and he'd get it off of his plate. But Herod, send, Herod sent Jesus right back to Pilate. 
Then Pilate's got to figure out another way to appease the crowd. So he thought maybe he would have Jesus whipped and beaten mercilessly. And then that would be enough to satisfy the crowd. But you know the story. The crowd was not satisfied. Finally, in an effort to avoid the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he offered a choice between Jesus and a known criminal named Barabbas. And when nothing but Christ died, Death would satiate the bloodthirsty crowd. Pilate quietly surrendered to their demands and formally condemned Jesus to death. The scripture says in Mark 15 and 15, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus, whom he had scourged, when he had scourged him, to be crucified. So Pilate's weakness was exploited by the chief priests and leaders who worked the crowd into an angry frenzy that day. And, and, and they, they got them to do what no rational, no rational man or woman would justifiably want a violent criminal like Barabbas released into their community rather than a, a preacher of truth and righteousness and peace like Jesus. No, no, no sane person would ever want that. But still the mob made its wishes known. Give us Barabbas uh, and crucify him. Uh, they knew what they were asking for. They were not unfamiliar with the practice of crucifixion. They knew the horrors for which they were calling. And Pilate even tried to distance himself from such butchery when he came out and publicly washed his hands before the crowd and said, I cleanse my hands. I wash my hands uh, of the blood of Jesus. I won't have his innocent blood on my hands. Oh, he couldn't have been more mistaken, my friend. Uh, hallelujah. But, but even more frightening than, than Pilate's words are the words of the crowd that they said back to him in Matthew 27 and 25, then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Uh, amen. We'll stand. Uh, we'll take it. We, we're, we'll be responsible. For what they didn't understand uh, was the power of that blood. Uh, they didn't understand uh, the words they were saying. Uh, they didn't understand, uh, amen, that that blood uh, was the only blood uh, that could ever cleanse sin, uh, that could ever wash away iniquity. Uh, that blood would be upon them and their children uh, in salvation, uh, or they would reject it and be forever lost. Amen. Pilate was the one that sent him to the cross, but Jesus was crucified between two criminals. The death of the innocent happened between the guilty. Purity died in the midst of corruption. But even this was in keeping with the life of Jesus. Jesus, though he was perfectly holy and was frequently in the company of uh, of his disciples, he was also frequently in the company of morally and ethically bankrupt people. He spoke with harlots. He touched the lepers. He had dinner with publicans and sinners. And with that life pattern, it is only appropriate that his death would occur in the midst of those who needed his forgiveness the most. Jesus Christ died for sinners in between two sinners so he could save sinners. Amen. That band of Roman soldiers who carried Jesus to the cross that day and nailed him to that torture's rack. They had probably crucified hundreds of men before. This was 
their their career required them to do this brutal deed and this was not an uncommon thing but never had they laid their hands on any no man like this one this was the king of kings this was the Lord of Lords. By his own declaration, there was no limit to his ability. In Matthew 28 and 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Uh, there was absolutely nothing that they could do to him against his will. Uh, had he not allowed it, there never would have been a whipping. Uh, had he not allowed it, uh, the, the, the Roman soldier never could have swung that cat of nine tails. Uh, if he had not allowed it, uh, they had never braided a crown of thorns uh, and pressed it upon his brow. Uh, if he hadn't allowed it, the first nail would have never been driven in his hands uh, and his feet. But every action the soldiers took uh, was by his permission. Concerning his own life, Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 18, No man takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. No man could take it, but he humbled himself. He said, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So I want you to understand this evening that it was not nails that held Jesus to the cross. Nothing forged by a mere blacksmith could ever hold the God of the universe to an old rugged cross. There was only one force powerful enough to bind him to that instrument of torture. It was the mighty love of God, the great love of God with which he loved us. The only impetus for the redemptive plan of God was his love for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We weren't good enough. There was nothing good in us. Amen. But he loved us. He loved us when we were yet unlovable. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He loved us when we didn't deserve it when we couldn't earn it, when we weren't worthy of it, he loved us. And that love culminated in his actions on the cross. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love bound him to the cross, but it didn't just bind him there, it kept him there while he suffered unspeakable agonies over a six-hour period. At any moment during that horrendous torture, he could have chosen in his sovereignty to abandon mankind's only hope and to come down from that cross. And he knew it, for he testified in the hours of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers first came to him in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53. He said this, he said, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. What are you going to do with that, boys? Amen. He could have called down heaven. Uh, he could have called down all the... And I'm going to tell you something. I'm a firm believer the angels are on the edge of eternity just waiting for him to call. Uh, I'm a firm believer that the heavenly host uh, doesn't understand what's going on uh, on that old rugged cross. Uh, and they're just waiting for the word. Uh, they're just waiting for the call uh, to come to his defense. But he humbled himself. 
He humbled himself. The cross was humiliating. One of the crueler aspects of his crucifixion was that while enduring the physical terror of the cross, he was also forced to suffer the ongoing mocking of those who were gathered there. They ridiculed him. They, they, they made fun of him for claiming to be the Messiah. They cried out from the crowd and dared him to deliver himself. Heal yourself, healer. Deliver yourself, deliverer. And they made false promises. If you'll just bring yourself down from that cross, we'll believe in you. When they knew they wouldn't believe in him. Those verbal assaults came from the Roman soldiers. They came from the Jewish leaders. They came from the angry mob that surrounded him. Then one more, vo one more voice joined that cry. But this voice was different. It came from the cross next to Jesus. The voice of a condemned thief in Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be Christ... Save thyself and us. How humiliating it must have been. How humiliating. Hallelujah. We don't understand it, my friend. I'm going to tell you there's a reason why repentance is so difficult for us. Because repentance is, is a cross. It's Calvary. It's about dying. Amen. And it takes true humility to repent. Amen. It's not enough just to say, I'm sorry. you got to feel the sorry. Amen? It's not enough just to, just to say, I, I wish I hadn't got caught. Amen? There's got to be some humility, some brokenness. Uh, that's what the cross is all about. Amen? The God of the universe, the Ancient of Days, uh, the one whose word was power and authority, he humiliated himself at the cross. But then there was the voice from the other side. It must have been like a cool breath of air in that last moments of his life as the thief on the other side said in Luke chapter 23 and verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserved it, we earned it, for we received the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And then turning his attention to Jesus, the second thief made a request that perfectly summed up the reason why Jesus was on the cross. A condemned man with no other hope, amen, no other recourse, nowhere else to turn. Hallelujah. All of us come to the place that man was. You don't understand. You think, as long as you think there's a way of escape from your sin, as long as you think there's a way of escape from the bondage other than the cross, amen, you'll never really truly repent. But all of us come to the place where that thief was. There was no hope. There was no tomorrow. There was no recourse. There was nowhere else for him to turn. Uh, there was just Jesus uh, hanging on a cross. Uh, amen. And a condemned man with no other hope uh, simply asked Jesus, uh, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus did what he came there to do. He answered the cry of the lost. With pain etching his voice, 
Jesus assured that man of his eternal destiny, saying, Verily I say unto thee, Today, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And even in that moment of agony, or perhaps especially in that moment of agony for sin, Jesus dealt with sin in the heart of a repentant man. Now it should be noted that his action in this case is in no way invalidates the necessity of an individual to be born again of water and of spirit. The thief was living before the new covenant. He dies under the old covenant. And under the old covenant, Jesus Christ becomes both his sacrificial lamb and his high priest. He becomes his temple. He becomes his mercy seat. He becomes everything for him. So, Pastor, how can you say that? Because only Christ's death could usher in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16 says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it's of no strength at all when the, while the testator liveth. Anybody ever made a will? You, you probably ought to consider it. Amen. Will is a powerful document. Tells the whole world where all your 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 humongous financial resources are going to go. Mine just tells who gets my dirty socks. Ain't all that much there. Amen. But a will has absolutely no power until you die. You can change that thing. You can re I know I have a friend who, on his deathbed, his father changed his will, was angry at him, and wrote him out of his will on his deathbed. Up until, up until you die, that thing has absolutely no power. But once Jesus died, the new covenant was in effect. Amen. Mere hours before that event, the thief found the grace of God, the forgiveness of God in the words of Jesus Christ because he was a compassionate Savior. But once he died... Amen. Once he ushered in that church age, once the Holy Ghost was poured out on that 50th day of Jubilee, amen, then the church age begins, and there's no other way of salvation. Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Amen. So Jesus forgave on the cross. Now, it's easy to understand that he might forgive the one who was in the same condition that he was. The one who, from the cross beside him, placed his faith in him. But Jesus extended his forgiveness from the cross to those who had crucified him. Even while his tormentors were still engaged in mockery and cruelty, Jesus forgave them. Hey, there are no beautiful words uh, in this entire story than these that are recorded in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, amen. Father, for, we're talking 
talking about the love of God. We're talking about the love that put him on the cross. We're talking about the love that caused him to redeem the lost even while he was dying for sins. We're talking about the love that looked at a world that had condemned him and crucified him. Foolish men who had judged him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That declaration sets a pattern for everyone who wants to be like him. It's easy to call yourself Christian, but here's the two tr true test of Christianity. Can you love like he loved you? Can you love like he loved you? The cross is full of miracles, but one of the miracles on the cross is its profound display of love. And the challenge to us as believers is to love like we've been loved. To show the kind of love that he has shown to us. We find it played out in Scripture when Stephen is being stoned. He's an innocent man. Amen. He's being stoned to death for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, whose name at that time was Saul, is standing among the crowd holding the coats of the men who are stoning him to death. And in the moment before he dies, uh, the scripture says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60 and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice Lord lay not this sin to their charge and when he said this he fell asleep wonder where he learned that he learned it from the cross he learned it from Jesus I'm going to tell you I, I am a believer I can't I can't bear this out in Scripture, but I am a believer that those words were the first thing that ever convicted Paul's heart. And I'm a believer that the words of Stephen pursued him until the day that Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and forever changed his life. I believe that Paul in the midnight hour when he was laying in his bed when nobody else was around questioned how how can a man have that kind of love. That's what Jesus said by your love one for another. That's how they're going to know you're my disciples. Uh, how can a man have that kind of love? <coughs> they're beating him to death with stones. And yet he says Father forgive them. Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. If we're going to be true followers of Jesus Christ, then we too are called to forgive. Forgiveness is sometimes a difficult thing. I mean, in order for somebody to need to be forgiven, that means they've wronged you. You're in the right, they're in the wrong. And we get hung up right there. We make it all about us. We make it all about our righteousness and our our hurt feelings and our anger and our bitterness. I'm going to tell you something. Forgiveness is two-way. It goes both ways. Because when you release someone from the wrong they've done to you, you release yourself from that same wrong. That thing that has lorded over you, that thing that has governed your thinking, uh, that thing that has bothered you in the dead of the night, that thing uh, that has reared its ugly head everywhere you turn, uh, when forgiveness comes from you, it doesn't just set them free, it sets you free. It opens the pathway of God's forgiveness to flow. Amen. And the scripture tells us if we forgive our neighbor, the Lord will forgive us. But if we don't forgive, it stops the work of his mercy in our life. 
I believe there's healing and forgiveness, spiritual and emotional healing. And some of us, and you're, you're in church, and you live for God, and you read your Bible, and you pay your tithes, and you're, you're here on Wednesday night. But you carry around some things that you haven't forgiven. And there is a whole other dimension of the love of God that wants to be manifest in your life, and he's just waiting for you to let forgiveness do its perfect work. Turn them loose. So, Brother McCall, they won't even admit they did anything wrong. Why does that matter? You don't need anything from them. You just need to turn them loose. You just need to forgive. Amen? And forgiveness isn't about a reciprocal act where they come back and say, well, I, well that's what we, we want an apology. We want them to come and make things. We want restitution. We want restoration. We want them to come and have to, have to grovel and humble themselves. That's not what it's about. Forgiveness is about loosing them, putting them in the hands of God because he's the only one that can judge them. Amen. We're not equipped to deal with that. Revenge is not our business. There's a reason why the Lord said it belongs to him. Because it destroys our spirit. It breaks us down. I'm not this in any one of my notes. I don't know how I got here, but I'm in the Holy Ghost right now. It breaks us down from the inside out. It, it taints everything that we are. When we get the idea that we're in control of retribution, we, we're going to show judgment. We're going we're gonna to get our just due. We've been wronged. Uh, my friend, you were wronged, uh, and Jesus Christ forgave you. You were a sinner lost, uh, and his blood covered you. And the challenge of the cross uh, is to love like you've been loved. Can I get an amen? Jesus died for that reason. I've got a whole lot more preaching, but I'm going to stop right now. I, I didn't even get to the resurrection. I told Brother Dennis when I was giving them scriptures just a minute ago, it'd be a miracle if I get through it all. But I feel the love of God trying to press in on this place. The scriptures say, Greater love hath no man than this, that would lay down his life for his friends. He loves you. He loves you. I mean, he really loves you. Not with kind of, you know, we have this flawed concept of love. I love my fishing pole. I love my deer rifle. I love my puppy dog. We use the word love so casually we, that it loses its value. Jesus Christ loves you. And he demonstrated his love on the cross. And he challenges you to love like you've been loved. That means you forgive those who don't deserve it. That means you, you, you show mercy when none is, none is none's warranted. That means when you're in the right, you still let mercy flow. You still let forgiveness happen. Because of the love of Jesus Christ. It's the only reason you can stand in his presence is because he loved you. And that love is what demonstrates him to a lost world. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to stop right there. Brother Ryan, I want you to come. I, had, I didn't even get three quarters of the way. I didn't get halfway, I don't think. But I had it in my mind that we were going to end with this song. And I know I haven't spent as much time on the resurrection and the cross, but 
says, and it, it's one of my favorites, and I don't sing, but if I did, I would just, I would wail the snot out of this song. It says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And it was on that old cross that the dearest and best, the dear Lamb of God, for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I cherish, I cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I'll cling to the old rugged cross until I exchange it someday for a crown. The third verse says this, in that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. I want you to see the cross this evening. I want you to see it in all of its beauty and all of its glory and the miracles that I didn't even get to, the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of redemption, the miracle of the blood, but the miracle of the love of God. Would you lift your voice and lift your hands in the presence of God? We're going to sing it. Amen. That old rugged cross, as we sing about it, would you take a moment, would you survey the wonder of the cross, and would you ask him, Lord, let that same love shine through me. Let that same love though flow through my life. In Jesus' name.